Well, last week we talked about the issue of unfairness, and I wonder in how many places and spaces did you hear differently the statement, that's not fair. The issue of fairness and the issue of unfairness is all over our world and culture. I trust I don't need to convince you that fairness is a really big deal. I heard of a couple kids on their way home uh, from Sunday sermon, little concerned that maybe their parents had ratted them out about the basketball illustration. Um, but just so you know, that's a hypothetical illustration, a hypothetical illustration. Theoretically speaking, it truly was. But it just illustrates the fact that all around us we find the issue of fairness is challenging. I mean, fair is hard to determine, fair is complicated. If we're honest, fair is fallen in the world in which we live. I mean, we, we try our best with all sorts of things, policies, laws, systems of government, but at the end of the day, nothing is going to be ultimately fair until King Jesus rules and reigns and at that moment, all unfairness and all partiality will be eliminated because King Jesus will rule and reign over all. I can hardly wait. He, um, he won't ask you what you think about what's fair. He'll tell you what's fair. <laughs> he won't ask for your testimony. He'll tell you what your testimony is. <laughs> he won't ask the roll of the tape. He's already got your heart. He knows what's there. And that's coming. But that's not yet. Until then, we live here in a broken world filled with all kinds of unfairness and issues related to partiality. And yet, the vision of the New Testament is that the church, in its best, could be a place where we get a little taste of what is yet to come. Where there's a group of people who love one another because of who they are in Christ, who value one another in a way that God values them, and it makes a powerful statement to the world. So when James writes to these believers in the first century about the issue of partiality, he's trying to help them sort of reclaim who they are. And I would suggest to you that every church and every Christian in every era in church history always needs to be thinking about this issue. We ought to expect that battling partiality will continue until Jesus comes. We're that sinful, the world is that broken, that's how much we need Jesus. Now, last week we reviewed four key questions. We only covered two of them. We were looking at the text, first with a high level view exegetically, I'll review that again, and then we covered two questions. What is partiality, when is it sinful? Today we're covering what does partiality look like, and fourth, how do we address it? So in case you weren't here last week, let me just give you sort of a high level overview. If I had an hour to preach, I could have put all of this into one message, but I needed to break it up into two parts. So this is more about application and then it is about exegesis, although certainly my exegesis informs um, what it is that I'm saying. Let me remind you a couple things. First, there's a great danger in talking about this subject of thinking about how this text needs to apply to everybody else. And let me just remind you to embrace the call of Matthew 7 and to look at the plank in our own eyes before we try and address the speck in other people's. Let's embrace this command to look at ourselves first. Secondly, let me remind you of the overall argument of these seven verses in James chapter 2. He begins by laying out this problem of partiality as it relates to holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Essentially what James is saying is partiality and a right understanding of the gospel do not go together. 
There, the, the, the issue of the gospel has implications. So talking about partiality doesn't mean that you've left the gospel behind. It means that you're trying to apply the gospel into an area that really needs the gospel. In the same way that we would apply the gospel to issues of morality or sexuality or how you talk, there are gospel implications. I trust you know that you can so invalidate the witness of the gospel by how you live that somebody might even question, do you, do you really understand what the gospel is? And what James is saying is that partiality is that kind of issue. Like, it's a big deal. In verse 4, he gives this illustration, or rather, verse 2, he gives this illustration of a gold man, or gold man, a rich man uh, coming into the congregation, and he's treated with a different level of deference than a poor man. He's said to be told, hey, you sit here in a good place, where the poor man is said to sit in a bad place. And verse four, we get to the core issue. James says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's the issue. You're making distinctions, and behind those distinctions are evil thoughts. The problem with partiality, the problem with sinful partiality, is it disconnects how we treat one another from how God thinks of us. We, we use a um, a dividing line that God would not be pleased with. This matter gets even worse when it gets into the church because by definition, the values of the kingdom are inverted from the kind of values that are in the world. Jesus even said, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And what's more, it was culturally in James's day, it was the rich that were making life difficult for these Christians so it just seemed very, not only odd to him, but really inconsistent with the gospel that when a rich man would come in, that they would be partial to him because they likely thought, oh, his wealth could relieve our burdens. And this is what partiality does. It tends to intensify this self-protection and partiality tends to grow when self-interest is rising. So partiality is where we run to when we want protection, where we want power. We use partiality to get what we want. So we talked about what is partiality. Last week I suggested to you that in the original language it means to receive the face. It means to be a respecter of persons. You can think of it as bias or prejudice. I gave you a definition that really it is unfair judgments leading to unjust actions. So un fair judgments leading to unjust actions. It means to sinfully favor one group over another. And it's sinful because it springs from this idea of self-interest. We, we use partiality in order to get what we want and it's associated with power and protection and when it violates the biblical norms of justice, it's terribly sinful. And the reason is, is because the Bible commands us to apply what's right and wrong fairly. And then also last week I suggested to you, we need to be careful because sometimes folks can kind of levy the charge of being partial when really all we're being is hospitable or honorable or kind. For you to cook a special meal for visitors coming into your home doesn't mean that you're being partial to them if your kids protest. Last week we got pizza, this week it's filet mignon. Yeah, because friends are coming over. So we need to make a distinction between what's appropriately partial, hospitable, honorable, respectable, 
versus what is sinful. So if you like messages, again, that are nice and clean and buttoned up, you don't have to think, you can just receive and go, oh, that's what I need to do, this is not your kind of message. If you like messages that you leave going, hmm, I've got a little bit to think about. If you like messages that make you just a bit uncomfortable, this is a great message for you. In fact, my goal is to make all of us just a little uncomfortable in a lot of ways so that we'll be helped in following Jesus. So today we're gonna look at two questions. What does partiality look like? And then what do we do about it? So here's the third question. What does partiality look like? What I'm gonna do, taking the evaluation of James 2, I wanna extend that out and just ask the question, where would we see this in the Bible? What exactly does partiality look like? So I'm gonna give you a few examples. But before we get into that, as I said, this is complicated, and I wanna make it just a touch more complicated. And, and the reason is that partiality is, change, is, is challenging, rather, because there are not only times when it's appropriate to be honorable to other people, but there also are many times when we have to make judgments based upon probability, and sometimes that, those probability judgments can actually be prejudicial and in other cases, they're not prejudicial, they're just probability judgments. I'll give you a few examples. Generalizations are a part of life, but they can be also sinful. And you've gotta decide and wrestle with, when has it crossed the line? For example, uh, you're driving a car and you see the student driver magnet on the back of someone's vehicle. The presence of that sign should give you caution because of the probabilities related to a student driver. Those of you who are in the insurance industry know that you have an uncomfortable conversation with parents when their kids begin driving that your insurance rates are gonna go up, why? Because you've got a new driver. You can't appeal, well that's being partial. No, that's actually probability judgment. Or if you see a car behind you with flashing red lights and blue lights, and you pull over, you've made a probability judgment that that's actually a police officer, not somebody pretending to be a police officer. Or if you see a dog that's roaming around your neighborhood with a foamy mouth and it looks mangy, you tell your kids, don't play with that dog because you're making a probability judgment about whether or not it's safe to play with. Let's get a little more complicated. You see a person you don't recognize walking around your neighborhood and something about them just doesn't quite seem right and you make a probability assessment as to what you should do. Or if you work on our security team where you serve in law enforcement, this is a real challenge. Someone's walking around our uh, children's ministry and they just are acting odd. You have to make a probability judgment of do I talk to them or not based upon the assessment of what you see. And is that partiality? No, but it could be depending upon what you see and why you see what you see. So you, you see, this is complicated, and sometimes the discussions related to this issue, they just go one way or the other, like it's all about partiality or it's never about partiality, and we need to acknowledge there's this fuzzy middle that I think good Christians should be able to have conversations about and lean into, not retreating to various corners. So John Piper puts it this way, life is not really livable without interpreting specific experiences in terms of more general experiences we have had. There's a fine line between legitimate probability judgments and sinful prejudice. 
It's a real line, and God sees it even when we don't. So again, you know, nuance is super important. On the one hand, we can't say that everything is partiality and everything is prejudice. Some probability judgments are necessary. But on the other hand, we can't deny the reality of true sinful partiality. It happens. There's many in our church who've experienced that. And what makes it more, more complicated is, if we're honest, we bring our experience into that mess. If you've experienced partiality, man, it is so incredibly painful. It's traumatic, it scars you. And on the other hand, if you've been accused of partiality, when as God is your witness, you weren't, that's really painful, it hurts. And additionally, it's possible to hide our partiality behind the veil of probability judgments. In other words, sometimes we actually are partial, but the fact of the matter is, is we present it as if we're not. So again, here's what Piper says. To say what I'm saying is very risky. It's risky because there will be some people who, in the hardness of their hearts, they will take my words about generalizing and probability judgments and use them as a cloak for their own prejudices. I know that. But I take the risk because there is another group of people who deep down know that we already use this self-justification. Sorry, I need to advance the slide. We don't have names for it. We don't work at it. It just comes naturally and it feels legitimate. So I'm pleading with born-again people, real saints, with remaining corruption in our hearts, I'm pleading that you would read this and say, yes, thank you for helping me see the subtlety of my own sin. I must put this to death. So what am I saying? I'm saying that rather than thinking about all the implications of partiality in everyone else's life and the what about this and what about that, which are not illegitimate questions to ask and to consider, but they're not helpful if we don't start first with asking ourselves, where might this appear in my life? And we ought not to be, I think, naive to think that it doesn't. Because every generation, since the beginning of the presence of sin in the world, in all cultures, in every country, it doesn't matter where you live, where there are humans, there will be partiality. Why? Because we take our self-interest with us it's cross-generational, um, it's cross-national, um, it's cross-ethnic, it's cross-socioeconomic, like it's, it's what human beings do in our brokenness. And yet the hope would be is that somehow the church, the church might be different. So let me give you some examples of where we find partiality in the Bible. First, James identifies that we find it in regards to wealth. James talks about a wealthy man being treated in a way that's different than the poor man. And that's all over the Bible. I gave you examples of that last week. You could write down Leviticus 16, 18 through 20, that someone's wealth or lack of it should not affect how they are treated. Here's another one, position. It's possible that someone's position in life could create partiality. So it's not that they're, that they're not wealthy in financial capital, they're wealthy in social capital. They're a person of influence. So Deuteronomy 1.17 says, you shall not be partial in judgment, you shall, not, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Another one is age. 
You could be guilty of sinful partiality towards those who are old and also towards those who are young. Timothy is told in 1 Timothy 5 to treat older men as fathers and older women as mothers, which would seem to apply that imply that there might be potential cause or concern, rather, about treating older people as less than they should regarding the care of them. So treat them as fathers and as mothers. And at the same time, Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. So both of those issues are important. Next, a family. We see great problems in the Old Testament, in particular when partiality happens inside of a family. Think, for instance, of Isaac's preference for Esau, Rebekah's preference for Jacob, and all that that led to. We see the same thing with Jacob's treatment of Joseph in Genesis 37. Another example would be cultural partiality. A good example of this would be Acts chapter 6. At Pentecost Sunday, there are Jews from all over the known world, and within that gathering are people who put their faith in Jesus. As a result, the church begins a benevolence program for widows who were financially struggling, and Acts chapter 6 tells us that the Hellenistic Jews, these are Greek-speaking um, Jews, they're not from Jerusalem, they're outsider Jews, their widows are being neglected. There's a partiality or something that's taking place in the context of that issue, and the disciples took it very seriously. They appointed people, but the names we would believe that they're also Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, to, to fix that problem. So even within particular ethnic groups, there can be cultural differences that cause partiality to happen, right? Just because somebody looks like you doesn't mean that they have the same culture as you, and even within the same ethnicity, there can be partiality between people who share common appearance and common background. Happened in the Bible, Acts chapter six. Ethnicity. Now, I'm sure you knew that eventually we needed to get here because two of the most common forms of partiality in the Bible are related to wealth and ethnicity. And, and the reason why sins like prejudice and racism are so sinful is because, James 2, they are examples of ethnic partiality. So let me give you a few examples of where this shows up. Take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 10, and then also keep your finger in Galatians chapter two. In Acts chapter 10, we find the story of Peter going to preach to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. This is after, if you know the story in Acts, a sheet is dropped in a vision. God tells Peter to eat and not to call unclean what he has called clean. And uh, at the time, there was not only a distinction between Jew and Gentile, but the Jews had developed all kinds of man-made rules to really keep the Gentiles out elevate Jewish culture, and Gentiles very much felt like outsiders. And Peter says this in chapter 10 and verse 34, he says this to these Gentiles, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so Peter had to kind of get his head around that reality, and when the gospel comes to these Gentile believers, Peter then is criticized by his fellow Jews. Look at Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. 
And so then Peter explains to them what took place in terms of the vision and in terms of what God did. Skip ahead then to Acts 11 and verse 18. It says, so when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Praise God. They, they realized that their wrong thinking about this needed to be transformed and they embraced a different mindset. Now, probably the greatest example of this is in Galatians chapter 2, and it's interesting that Paul actually records this moment of a major confrontation between him and the apostle Peter. The setting is the city of Antioch. Antioch was the first church that was multicultural and multi-ethnic. It was a beautiful combination of Jews and Greeks. It was the, the launching pad for future ministry in the, the known world. And Antioch was a complicated city in and of itself. It had various boroughs or divisions where people of different ethnicities lived. And this church was planted in this city. And it was an amazing church that people really didn't know what to do with it because they weren't Jews, they weren't Greeks. And it's at Antioch. Antioch, it's the first time that people are called Christians. I just think of that. The reason they're called Christians in this moment is because there was no category for these people. Who are they? Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? Like, this doesn't even make sense. How is this working? They call them Christians. Well, Peter comes to this location to visit Paul and to see the work of God's grace through the gospel in this church. And part of the beauty of what's happening is the gospel's not only being preached, but we have people from different ethnicities and different backgrounds who are worshiping together in a way that's really amazing. So when Peter, verse 11, all called Cephas here, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face for he, because he stood condemned. So Paul does this in front of everyone. For before certain men came from James, so these are Jewish men coming from James. Peter was eating with Gentiles. This is a big deal. He's eating with Gentiles. He's in that meal is communicating a oneness, a unity, an equality, that there's no barrier between them, no separation. But when they came, when the Jews came, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So you can see what happens. They're all having a meal together. They're one in Christ, enjoying fellowship. The meal was an emblem of the gospel underneath their lives. These Jews come in, and Peter breaks that whole fellowship thing. And you can't just say, wow, what's the big deal about the meal? The meal was a marker. The meal meant something. And, and if you've experienced partiality, you know that that kind of thing, that is really painful. When you're felt and communicated that you're other, and what happened here is the thing then took off. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Like this thing got bad, and verse 14, he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, there it is, their conduct. What's the conduct? The conduct was making distinctions between Gentiles and Jews. I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So in the rest of the text, verses 15 through 21, explain the gospel commitments underneath that show itself in how you think about Jew and Gentile, and how you think about the sharing of a meal, which was a marker of cultural oneness. So, what we find here is this thing of Jew and Gentile in the New Testament is really a big deal, which then Paul comes in Colossians chapter three, and he says here in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
And then if we go all the way to the end, Revelation chapter seven, we see that the gathered people of God are a people explicitly stated a multitude from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. So partiality at every level, wealth, age, position, ethnicity, it's something that Christians in every era need to think about because partiality tends to express itself wherever sin is found. So what do we do about it? Some of you know very well what that feels like. You know the look, you know the feeling, you know the sense of otherness. What do we do about it? Maybe in your heart you're like, I don't want that to be true in my life. Like, I, I, I don't want that to be. Like, what do I do? Or if you're like, I have a lot of questions, but I, I wanna be leaning toward a gospel mindset as it relates to this, what do I do? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, we need to understand the beauty and the power of the gospel. Church, partiality will never be solved until Jesus comes, but that doesn't mean that the church shouldn't lean into it. Because the only solution for the self-focused, self-protecting, self-exalting sinfulness that expresses itself in every form of partiality is the transforming work of Jesus in the heart of a person. And that's why James says, have no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So to be very blunt, the one group of people in all of the world who ought to be able to step into this space and have transformative power are people who have a commitment to a relationship with a Nazarene named Jesus who rescued them from their sins, right? And I hope that that's where your heart and perspective is. I know there's lots of questions, but could we at least just agree on that? Here's the second thing as it relates to the church. So what then is the church to be? So the gospel has the power then to make different kinds of people love one another in a way that's supposed to confound the world. The beauty of the church is that gospel identity gets underneath all other identities and creates this transforming mindset. Meaning that Jesus said he, or Paul said Jesus is our peace. He made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that means that there's a gravitational pull within our culture, within our hearts, to have things like our socioeconomic status, our positions in life, our cultural backgrounds, and even our ethnicities to define us even more than what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Doesn't mean that those things don't matter, but it means that being a follower of Jesus then transforms those from the inside out. And as a result, my role as a follower of Jesus, is to value people and relationships through this Christian identity lens. Or here's the way I've maybe tried to help you think about it, to see life through this theological, cultural, and political lens, that who I am in Christ, and who are my people, and how I think about engaging in the world, that kingdom values go from the bottom up, and can I warn you that secular mindsets and a worldly uh, mindset goes from the top down. And the way that Jesus said we transform the world is from the bottom up. Third, we need a dose of humility. We need to apply Matthew chapter seven to our lives and recognizing when, and recognize rather, when partiality can occur. This is from, again, from John Piper. It can happen, listen to me, when we treat all members of a group as if all must be characterized by a negative generalization. 
So we can make sweeping generalizations. All blank kind of people are blank. And does it go both ways? 100% it does. Or we can speak negatively of a group based upon a generalization without giving any evidence that we acknowledge and appreciate that there are exceptions. We can third speak disparagingly of an entire group on the basis of negative generalizations without any personal regard for those in the group who don't fit the generalization or if I might add, without any knowledge of the people even in that group. (laughs) We can make big sweeping statements and then we dial a little deeper to say, but do you know anybody who has had that experience? What story can you tell me? In some cases, our opinions are ahead of our relationships. Our assumptions are ahead of our knowledge and our experience. Next, love. Partiality is deeply personal. It's tragically personal. And let me encourage you to find ways through gospel-centered relationships to learn about the experience of one another, especially of those who feel like they have been treated as other. Before you jump into a defensive position, do your part. I encourage you to let your first step to be to weep with those who weep. Over the last couple of years, and after hearing from some of our minority brothers and sisters about their experience in our church, one of the things I've tried to do is to be sure that we're, I'm, listening carefully. Not just because ethnic partiality is the only issue, no, but to be very candid, from my seat as a white evangelical pastor, the learning curve regarding ethnic partiality, that learning curve is steeper. I understand more easily how partiality to a wealthy person can happen than I do in regards to ethnic partiality. I can imagine the ways that wealthy partiality could be expressed, but I've had to learn about how does that happen in the church? What does that look like and how, how did that make you feel? So it's not that other issues aren't important. No, they are. But this issue in particular is particularly important to listen to especially when historically churches like the ones that we are and have come from, if you look historically, have not done a great job of listening to those concerns. So just to be honest, if I'm gonna err, I wanna err on the side of listening when historically that hasn't been the case. I know that needs to be kept in balance. Some of my detractors would say, and perhaps fairly so, that I'm not as balanced in that as what I could be at times. But my end game is I want the church to look like heaven. And when a brother or sister experiences a sense of other, I wanna understand that and know about it. And however, by God's grace, whatever I can do to help change that, in love I want to. And finally, I think there needs to be an element of courage. Partiality is hard because it takes courage to identify the issue and work for change. I mean, think of the courage that it took on Paul's part to call Peter out in front of everyone, wow. And yet it requires people whose love for Jesus's vision and for the advance of the gospel, they love that so much that they just, they can't stand the marginalization of people that they're one in Christ with. 
no matter who they are. And when they hear about it, they want to bring change. One of the greatest examples of this was demonstrated in a little group that we have at church here called 3DG, Discipleship Diversity Discussion Group. It started after some conversations about how can we think about how to shepherd this space um, better as regards to ethnicity and, and, uh, and, and ethnic harmony. Well, many of the brothers who are leading that group, um, minority brothers, have experienced partiality, both outside the church and, sadly, inside the church. I've heard their stories. They've caused me to shed tears. But in one particular meeting, a white brother stood up in the middle of that group and said, I've experienced partiality from people who are not my ethnicity. I've experienced partiality from minorities. He grew up in a particular neighborhood and the story that he told demonstrated pretty clear partiality. He was mistreated. And even though these brothers, minority brothers, had experienced so much partiality in their life, when they heard that from another brother, they said, that's not right. We're sorry. That shouldn't happen, ever. And they welcomed him to come down to the front, sat him and another brother who had also had the same experience on two chairs, laid their hands on them and prayed for them. And that began a, a beautiful healing moment. But it took courage and it also took a lot of grace to be able to realize that wherever partiality demonstrates itself, it's a violation of the very heart of what it means for the gospel to be the gospel. You see, church, when you love Jesus, you love justice. When you love Jesus, you wanna see unfair judgments and unjust treatment not happen. And I know it's complicated and challenging to figure out where those things are truly unfair, where they truly are unjust. I get that, it's really complicated. But here's the thing, when you understand the beauty of the gospel, when you understand what's underneath, you at least want to lean into those conversations, not away with them, because you know that partiality just doesn't fit with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why James says, have no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to help us with a heavy topic with so many layers that you would apply your word by your spirit in our lives today as only you can do. Lord, for brothers and sisters who hear this message today and their hearts are just really heavy because they have felt the looming clouds of otherness, Lord, we pray that you'd give them grace. Thank you that they're part of our assembly. Thank you, Lord, that they have borne hardship and difficulty and they're persevering. We pray you continue to help them to do so. Lord, help us to know how to serve them and to encourage them and help them and, Lord, to continue to grow and have things that are so hurtful not continue to happen. Lord, forgive us for when we've unintentionally or, God forbid, intentionally created barriers. And Lord, we do pray also for the deep recesses of our hearts that are so prone to partiality in many different ways. Would you help us to see what you by your spirit would want us to see today? Without false guilt or blanket judgment, we just ask you, Holy Spirit, to just illumine our minds as to where our tendency might be and then lead us in a path, we pray, of love, kindness, unity and oneness. Lord, we need your help for that. 
And church, while we're just wrapping this prayer, could I just give you a moment just to talk to the Lord about what is it that you need to say to him today about where you're at? What grace do you need to pray for? What perhaps misguided thoughts or even actions do you just need to even confess and repent of? And could you ask the Lord to help you to model what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully? Lord Jesus, we thank you for hard texts in the Bible. We thank you for things that speak into the complicated milieu of life. We thank you that there are things that aren't easily answered and stuff that's not tightly buttoned up and that you by your spirit will help to lead us even today in how we grow and apply your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.